Welcome to Making Connections News. I'm your host, Mimi Pickering. On this episode, we hear from Black Lung Association members and other Appalachian leaders who are calling on Congress to reinstate the fees supporting the Black Lung Disability Trust Fund. We'll also listen to speakers from Reimagine Appalachia's recent strategy summit who describe the opportunities for investment and job creation that are possible as new federal funding is directed towards coal communities. But first, this is the week in which we honor Dr. Martin Luther King. Xander Brown, a young multimedia producer for The Daily Yonder, offered this reflection on the meaning of Dr. King's legacy. Hi, my name is Xander Brown. I'm a producer with The Daily Yonder and welcome to the home office. <laughs> I've been doing a bit of reshuffling lately and I've become acutely aware of how many books I have. Um, most of these books are from my grandparents' house, not trying to put the blame on anyone, but somehow they found a way to follow me here. Hmm. Anyway, <laughs> in commemoration of MLK Day and the fast approaching Black History Month, um, a book stuck out to me recently, this one here, why We Can't Wait by Martin Luther King Jr. himself. I've never read Martin Luther King Jr. before, which is strange because I've heard so much about this man through school, college courses, and I've never met his words face to face until now. And I did wonder if I would have anything new to learn or gain versus, you know, the kumbaya that usually frames his birthday and talks of the civil rights movement. But I did. It further stirred thoughts that I've had for a while now. I think reflection is important. No doubt a lot of us have been doing plenty of that given these uncertain times. I think COVID has forced us to face the ways that we arc our lives towards convenience, um, existing for convenience, and when we are no longer such, being discarded. I also notice how every January, without fail, people find a way to water down the potency of disruption that Martin Luther King Jr. was. He's flattened on murals and street signs that some joke are in the roughest parts of America. And online and in discourse, he's arranged as the reasonable way to protest, the way to make change without being a vagabond, a thug, or a writer. In his book, he writes, no one can pretend that because the people may be oppressed, every individual member is virtuous and worthy. The real issue is whether in the great mass, the dominant characteristics are decency, honor, and courage. Those descriptors, decency, honor, and courage are not synonymous with fealty to the law. Martin Luther King Jr. was not a law-abiding citizen. Martin Luther King Jr. was a jailbird, and in his call for nonviolence, he encouraged others to go willingly to jail as well. He was a thorn in the side of the left and the right alike. He called for the unity of the working class, both black and white. He critiqued the elitism of W.E.B. Du Bois' talented 10th. He was on the FBI watch list. In fact, the same year that this book was published in 1964, the FBI sent a blackmail package to his home as a way to assassinate his character, undermine the movement, and ultimately make him commit suicide. Nonviolent as he was, make no mistake that he was a threat. He called for disruption, a fight against convenience, a fight against going quietly into that good night with sit-ins and marches and boycotts of businesses big and small. He was a threat to the convenience of keeping things the same or doing just enough to keep the peace. He was a threat against the convenience of creating laws that one never felt the full effect of. To me, he represents the fight against the convenience of being able to tokenize his words without ever having read him. Martin Luther King Jr. defied police forces, spent many nights in jail, and led protests that today would have people raging in their driver's seats as they're waiting in traffic for the protest to pass. You don't have to hurt someone to be a threat. Just like you don't have to be a slave to be a convenience. You simply have to stop looking, stop questioning, stop wondering about what's happening right in front of you. So I ask you on this Martin Luther King Jr. Day, what ways have you served convenience? And in what ways can you build community enough 
to be a positive disruption. That was Xander Brown. You can watch a video of her comments at thedailyyonder.com. The Daily Yonder provides news, commentary, and analysis about and for rural America, with reporters and columnists contributing from around the country. Next up, we hear from a January 14th press conference organized by the National Black Lung Association, Appalachian Voices, and the Appalachian Citizens Law Center. The group presented a letter signed by over 65 organizations calling on Congress to take action to restore the excise fee supporting the Black Lung Disability Trust Fund. The excise fee was cut by more than half when the Build Back Better bill was not passed at the end of 2021. When the Black Lung Benefits Program began in the late 1960s, it was thought that stricter coal dust controls in the mines would lead to an eventual end of the disease that has crippled and killed so many miners. For a variety of reasons, that has not happened. Instead, there's a new upswing in miners at ever younger ages contracting black lung. Rebecca Shelton, Research Director at Appalachian Citizens Law Center in Whitesburg, describes the increasing need for black lung benefits. Thank you all for being here today. My name is Rebecca Shelton. the Director of Policy and Organizing at Appalachian Citizens Law Center based in Whitesburg, Kentucky. Um, so, you know, coal miners and their communities are facing an epidemic amid our COVID pandemic. Um, black lung disease has risen to historically unprecedented levels. Since 2000, after decades of decline, the number of U.S. coal miners diagnosed with black lung disease has dramatically increased. Incidence rates of black lung disease have hit a 25-year high in Appalachian coal mining states and have reached epidemic levels in coal communities across the nation. In central Appalachia, where we're based, one in five veteran miners has the disease, and the rate of miners being diagnosed with the most severe form of the disease, progressive massive fibrosis, or you might hear it referred to as complicated black lung disease, is the highest ever recorded. Our firm, which represents minors in their black lung disability lung claims, has seen this epidemic firsthand. We're currently representing hundreds of mining families and we have more individuals walking through our doors with progressive massive fibrosis than ever before. The resurgence of this disease is being driven in large part by miners' increased exposure to silica dust. Um, Silica dust is more toxic than coal dust and miners with black lung disease are now younger and sicker than ever before. Um, Cases of this, of the most severe form of of black lung disease are often diagnosed in miners with as little as eight years of experience. These are not always miners that have been able to work a full career. It's interrupting careers. Um, And in miners who are as young as in their thirties and early forties. So I say all of this just to emphasize that black lung disease is not something of the past, though it is something that has affected families for generations, but it's also continues to be a crisis right now. And that's why we're working so hard to support the revenue for the Black Lung Disability Trust Fund. So after minors develop black lung, the long and complicated process of applying for their black lung benefits begins. In many cases, the coal company the miner worked for is responsible for paying these modest benefits. And after years in a legal battle with their previous employers, many miners will win their benefits. But the trust fund steps in when a coal miner's employer is bankrupt, when no coal operator can be identified as responsible for paying benefits, when a coal company did not did not post sufficient collateral with the Department of Labor in order to cover their black lung liability. And it also pays interim benefits to minors when the coal companies uh, uh, appeal their cases. So as minors are going through their legal battles, they do receive interim benefits and healthcare from the trust fund. The fund provides um, very small monthly payments of less than $700 per month for a single minor and the medical benefits to these minors and their um, surviving dependents. The stipends matter to minors and their families. 
and the health insurance benefits can make all the difference in the world. So last week, we released a brief report outlining some key aspects of the trust fund. And we noted in this report in fiscal year 2021, over 149 million in black lung compensation was paid from the trust fund to minors and their families in 47 states. However, some of the, the beneficiaries of these payments are concentrated in particular states, including West Virginia. In West Virginia alone, over $38 million in payments from the trust fund in 2021 or approximately 25% of the total annual payout from the fund went to West Virginia families. As of September, 2021, including both trust fund and those minors who have won their benefits from companies, there are approximately 4,423 West Virginia minors and families currently receiving black lung benefits. So, Unfortunately, in spite of how important and critical this fund is and that these benefits are, we're still having trouble getting the message through to Congress. So due to congressional inaction at the end of last year, the sole funding source for the trust fund was cut by more than half when the new year began. The trust fund is solely funded by revenue from the black lung excise tax. And unfortunately, even though there is this source of revenue for the fund, the trust fund has been plagued by debt almost since its inception. It's over currently over $4 billion in debt. The excise tax is paid by coal companies per ton of coal sold domestically. And because the, and I just want to emphasize that because the trust fund pays for benefits in cases where the minor's employer has gone bankrupt, it's more important now than ever before as a wave of, of coal industry bankruptcies and transference of liability onto the trust fund becomes more and more common. You know, it's, it's truly critical to maintain this fund, um, but unfortunately, the solvency of the fund was in jeopardy before the tax was cut at the end of the year, and now it's jeopardized even further um, by that cut. So now, at this moment, more than 65 organizations, including the mine workers and National Black Lung Associations and allied organizations across the country, are asking Congress to fix this problem immediately and re reinstate the current the past rate of the black lung excise tax to help shore up the black lung disability trust fund. Truly, we feel that it's incredibly unacceptable that this excise tax was cut. It's a very small thing to ask for, for the continuation of this tax at its very low rate. We're just asking for a continuation of the status quo. Senators and representatives often pledge their support for minors and their families, but we don't see those words realized through action often enough. Coal miners risk their lives to power this country. They deserve our support to make sure that the trust fund remains solvent into the future. That was Rebecca Shelton with Appalachian Citizens Law Center. Next, we hear from Vonda Robinson, a coal miner's wife and Black Lung Association leader, and Arvin Hanshaw, a disabled miner from West Virginia. You'll have to excuse my voice. I have been sick. Um, my name is Vonda Robinson. I am the vice president over the National Black Lung Association and helping with the uh, Chapter 2 in Southwest Virginia. Um, I live in Nicholsville, Virginia. Um, my husband was diagnosed at 47 with black lung, and um, he, that was a, actually a shock, you know, being that young, but he had almost 28 years in the mind. And without the excise tax, I just talked to um, the coal company this morning. They're actually going to pay for his eloquence, too, which he has pulmonary embolisms in his lungs, he has. So that was good because if right now we're looking at if we didn't have the card that pays 100% on his um, on his medical, anything to do with his heart or lungs and all of his prescriptions, we would be looking at around $6,000 a month. So there's no way that we could afford that. And um, we really need this excise tax passed because, you know, there's no way that we could actually afford that. And that card is, you know, tremendously helping us a lot. And um, I just want to make 
let everybody know that I've been working with different ones in Southwest Virginia, trying to help them with um, their black lung. I've worked real close with Mark Warner, Senator Mark Warner. Uh, we actually worked on a widow's bill, um, trying to get it passed. I've been helping widows um, actually, you know, get their payments. And, you know, if if you could just see how, how important this is, even for the widows, uh, even for the men, you know, we really need help. I've worked and went to D.C. and different things. And, you know, the miners are getting tired. You know, we, we work and it's always one year, one year, one year. And it would be good if we could get the four-year extension to help the miners because they depend on this. The widows depend on this. And if you all could do anything to help us, we would greatly appreciate it. And, you know, just try to do something in Southwest Virginia and national-wise national with everything. And, um, like I said, you know, that card is gold to a lot of the men because, um, there's no way that, you know, we could pay five and $6,000 a month for his medicine. But, you know, if y'all have any questions, you can ask, and I'll turn it over to Arvin. Uh, yes, my name is uh, Arvin Hanshaw. Uh, I live in Summersville, West Virginia, near Summersville. I went into the mines in 1978, and uh, and I come in contact with uh, first signs of um, – uh, black lung uh, 12 years after I was in the mines and uh, it's been getting worse ever since and right now that I've got uh, I, I, I took more 30 35 years in the underground at the face and and uh, over the period of time uh, right now I've got complicated pneumoconiosis with progressive fibrosis it's in the last stage and uh it hinders your black lung hinders your uh, ability to do what you once done before. And uh, in night in, in, in 2012, I, I had to come out of the mines and, and, and quit working on account of the black lung was so bad that I couldn't, the doctors wouldn't let me uh, go back. And, uh, and I fought for my black lung and stuff and, and finally I got it. And, uh, but over the period of years that we take, uh, take a look at it, these companies is, that uh, is responsible for your, your black lung and stuff these, and, and everything, uh, whenever they, you work for them, they take and uh, at the end of it, they file bankruptcy. And whenever they file bankruptcy, it always, it turns over to the trust fund. Well, we, I've took and been noticing that uh, some of these companies, they just open up in a different name. And whenever they get through, they, they take foul bankruptcy again. And, uh, you know, this excise tax we, needs to be, uh, we need this here uh, excise tax because uh, uh, it's uh, uh, the companies that's supposed to pay it. And uh, they they cut it in half, which the excise tax right now the fund is it's 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 pretty it's in jeopardy right now, and if they take and cut it down and the way it is to half, it's it's going to get even more, and it's going to get to where the uh, the taxpayers has to pick up the 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 part of it. Uh, I, I you know we take a look at uh, we put these here representatives in office to. For, for our benefits, uh, it's it's on both sides of the aisle. Coal miners, uh, black lung don't it don't take and uh, 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 hit just one side. It's it's both sides. So it's both sides that puts these your representatives in office and Congress and stuff like that uh, for the benefit to to help the people. And you know the, and I, I I believe they need to be doing that and. Uh, so uh, they take and uh, uh, file bankruptcy to get out of it, and then it falls over to the trust fund. See, the coal companies say they we they need to pay this excise tax uh, to keep it going, keep the fund going, because it takes and um, uh, uh, helps out with the with the bills, uh, the 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 medical bills and stuff like that, and uh, you know. 
they just companies just do that just try to get out of it and they and they should be it should be passed the excise tax not only for four years we would like to take and get it uh, to be extended that the that congress and them take and help us to get it extended to uh, uh 10 years and that way we wouldn't have to worry about uh whether or not we're, we're going to get our benefits and uh, so uh you know, uh, uh, here in West Virginia, that's uh, that. There's a lot, a lot of people that looks up to our senators and stuff in office, and and Manson's one of them. And and uh, you know, uh, I've known a lot of uh, different ones. It's that's across the aisle has taken uh, voted for him to be in there because he was for you know for West Virginia and the help of West Virginia, and. Uh, so, and talk about the, the, our, our young coal miners that's coming up. I got nephews that's, that's in the mines right now. That's, that's real young. It's saying that they, they, um, they're short winded and stuff. And, and, uh, it's, it's because that, uh, we take a look at, they, they, they're, they're mining in different, whenever I was in the coal mines working at that, we, in other words, I caught the gravy coal. We got the gravy coal, and we still got contacted with with the black lung. And uh, so these young guys, they're cutting more rock, more silica, and uh, we're we're much uh, concerned about that because they are our, our younger coal miners. It's, it's contacting the black lung early in their life, and and let me tell you. Having a black lung is it's it's not no easy way. It's a it's a bad way of life. You can't do things and and that you'd love to do. I I would love to work until just this past March, which I was sixty five years old, and uh, but I had to come out in twelve in in two thousand and twelve because of the disease that you that I contacted working in the mines to to feed my family, to take care of my family and stuff. And uh, actually, we need this. We need it. Uh, we need the, uh, this excise tax to be passed uh, for a longer term uh, because people that's on black lung and stuff, uh, they use that to take and uh, to supplement their uh, help with their uh, uh, medical bills and their and their um, and other bills all of us here at the black lung associations and stuff around the country, different States is working, trying to, uh, to get it to where, Hey, it's good for, you know, it helps everybody that's, that's been in, in the mines and stuff and needs the help. Uh, you know, I'll, that, that's what I have. And, and I appreciate you having me on here. For many years, miners and their families have been fighting for a long-term extension of the excise tax at the previous or higher rates. Chelsea Barnes, who is based in Norton, Virginia, is Appalachian Voice's legislative director. She described this history and the urgent need for a multi-year extension of the fees. On January 1st, the sole source of revenue for the Black Lung Disability Trust Fund was cut in half after Congress failed to extend the Black Lung excise tax before the end of the year. The Build Back Better Act was that stalled in the Senate includes a four-year extension to the tax at the higher historic rate. Since that legislation failed to pass Congress at the end of the year, the tax rate has now been cut by more than half. Now minors and their families who count on black loan benefits are under a cloud of uncertainty. Unfortunately, this is not the first time that minors and their families have seen Congress fail to step up on their behalf and extend this important tax. Three years ago, Congress failed to act and funding was cut in half in 2019, pushing the trust fund deeper into debt. Funding was restored the next year, but Congress has now fallen back into its old habits. So what does this mean for minors with black lung and their families? The year-to-year instability of this fund and long-term uncertainty create undue stress for coal miners and their families. And what does this mean for the public? When coal companies are let off the hook for these costs, they fall on the shoulders of the taxpayer. Coal companies aren't held accountable for the disease that they are causing, and the taxpayers pick up the bill. This uncertainty and the mounting debt and the need for coal companies to pay these miners and their families what they deserve are exactly why advocates are asking for a longer-term 10-year extension of the bill. 
Earlier in 2021, Senator Manchin introduced the Black Lung Benefits Disability Trust Fund Act of 2021, which extends the excise tax for 10 years, but that legislation is not advanced. That 10-year extension provides longer-term security for the fund and the miners who depend on it compared to the short-term one-year extensions. Instead of this bill moving forward, a four-year extension was included in the Build Back Better Act, which is now in jeopardy following Senator Manchin's opposition. To be clear, we are happy to see the excise tax extended through any avenue that Congress provides, and we're pushing for multi-year extensions. For the past few years, we've only had single-year extensions. A 10-year extension is a historically set precedent that we think is right to reenact. Four years is certainly better than one or zero, um, but a longer-term extension will provide the certainty that coal miners and their families deserve. Because the Build Back Better Act is not yet passed, and there was no other plan to pass an extension of the tax in 2021, once again, the trust fund is piling up more debt and taxpayers are picking up the tab as the benefits that miners have earned are put under a cloud of uncertainty. Based on 2021 revenue, we can estimate that the trust fund is losing approximately $2.8 million per week due to Congress's inaction. The amount, this amounts to new tax benefits for coal companies and new expenses that fall on taxpayers. If Congress doesn't act to extend the historic rate, the trust fund's debt could skyrocket to over $15 billion by 2050. This is a burden paid by taxpayers and not the coal companies who are causing the disease. So the letter sent to Congress this week was signed by more than 67 organizations across the country, as well as 15 leaders of the Black Lung Association and the United Mine Workers of America. They signed because they know the difference that these benefits make in communities and for thousands and thousands of families who earn these benefits and deserve support now that they suffer from the impacts of this terrible disease. We are hopeful that Congress will listen to coal miners and communities that rely on coal and move swiftly to extend the excise tax, whether as part of the Build Back Better Act or another legislative vehicle. Thousands of coal miners and their families across the country rely on this trust fund to make ends meet Restoring the tax rate to the 2021 level is absolutely vital to ensuring that these families have the benefits they were promised and access to the health care they so desperately need. In a question and answer session at the end of the press conference, it was asked if Black Lung Association members and supporters would be working on other issues if they weren't having to continually fight to keep the excise tax. Vonda, Rebecca, and Arvin responded. This is Vonda. Uh, Vice President of the National Black Lung. Um, I can speak for that because I get a lot of phone calls and stuff with people. Um, you know, just like when we came into this first, we was we was not knowledgeable of what we needed to do and where we needed to go. And I've been helping a lot of miners here, you know, trying to, you know, send them in the right direction, telling them where they need to go, what they need to do. Um, if, you know, we could help other miners and the widows. I've been helping the widows a lot, too. Um, we could actually focus on that and giving people more information on what they need to do. If we didn't always have to, you know, do the excise tax. Um, that would free us up to, you know, do more seminars to make people, you know, about the silica, about the black lung, about the benefits, how you go about it and stuff like that. Yeah, I would, I would just emphasize that I think that Vonda makes an important point. And it's that there are other policy issues that I think we're all working on. And, and you named some of them, Vonda and Arvin, you mentioned them too, in terms of just trying to prevent this disease by uh, enacting a silica standard in the mines. Uh, you know, currently minor coal miners um, are the only workers in this nation that are not protected from silica, um, which is unimaginable really, but it is the reality. And the other piece is that we are working to, we've been focused so much on just maintaining the status quo of the excise tax. And we know that there's going to, that the trust fund needs a bigger solution. Um, you know, we need to be thinking more long-term right now as the industry dynamic changes and we haven't honestly haven't had the capacity to do that because we're just triaging in the present moment, trying to keep this, this small tax alive and online. And as Vonda said, Black Lung Associations and you know, on our organization too, 
we are there to help minors through what is already a very arduous benefits process. It's very challenging. It's a lot of paperwork. It's years and years of showing up in court. That that's enough, right? We don't we don't need to have folks also worried about the the benefit structure and whether or not there's going to be funding. My name is Arvin Hanshaw. Uh, I've got something to say about the the silica. Uh, the silica, you know, this right now the cut they're cutting. Whenever I took and left out of the mines, I was cutting four foot of rock for like twenty five to thirty inches of coal, and uh, the silica has went up. They're, they're cutting more rock to get to get the coal and uh, it's it's causing this silica uh, and this silica whenever it hits your lungs it don't come out of it uh it just hardens up there uh now the coal dust you can cough some of it out but the, the silica it, it just goes in there and it cuts and it causes uh the or the problem that they have that um uh, uh, so uh we need the standard on that too. We we need a, a, a standard, you know, a lower standard on our silica dust and stuff that's going out. That the the miners is uh, is uh, in contact with and uh, everything. So that's what I wanted to thank you for letting me come. You've been listening to a January 14th press conference urging Congress to take immediate action to restore funding for the Black Lung Disability Trust Fund. You can find out more, including information on contacting your representatives at www.powerplusplan.org slash about hyphen black hyphen lung. That's www.powerplusplan.org slash about hyphen black hyphen lung. On a brighter note, on January 11th and 12th, Reimagine Appalachia hosted a strategy summit to discuss opportunities for business growth, infrastructure rebuilt, job creation, and climate change reduction that are coming to the region because of the funds now available from the historic Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, as well as the American Rescue Plan and other sources of federal funding being prioritized for coal communities. Over the two days, the summit featured experts in economic development, labor, climate change and conservation, and progress towards racial justice and equity. On day one, Peter Hilly, president of the Mountain Association, formerly known as Mason and based in Berea, was a featured speaker. I'm happy to be speaking to you today from the ancestral lands of the Cherokee and Shawnee people here in Eastern Kentucky. We honor them and all those who came before us. At the Mountain Association, we describe our work in terms of investing in a just transition to a new economy. We recognize that the new economy needs to be more diverse, sustainable, equitable, and resilient. And the old economy was none of those things. Now, in order to advance this just transition, we need to understand how we got to where we are. This map shows Appalachia's economically distressed counties. That means they fall in the bottom 10% of all the counties in America. And we can see that there's a dense concentration of these counties in the coal fields. We know that coal was the dominant industry here for a long time, and we know it generated a lot of economic activity. So it makes sense to ask why the economy of this region is in such a hard place. We know we lost a lot of coal jobs in the collapse of 2012, but this whole region has been characterized by persistent poverty for decades before that. So to understand how we got here, I'm gonna cite some data from Kentucky, but the story is similar in coal communities across Appalachia. Now, coal jobs peaked in Kentucky in 1949, but soon after that, the mines were mechanized, and that's when the long decline in jobs began. Even as we were producing more coal, we were doing it with fewer workers and bigger machines. When we look across the last 70 years, we can see that overall the jobs have been going down. By 2012, Kentucky had less than a third of the jobs we had in 1949. Then, in 2012, 
For the first time, natural gas per BTU became cheaper than coal, and as a result of the fracking technologies that were being implemented. When that happened, thermal coal industry collapsed, and we lost about half our remaining coal jobs almost overnight. And that's what really woke people up to something that had been going on for a long time. That decline in jobs has continued, and even the recent uptick in coal jobs is not going to reverse the long-term trend. The people and places that produced coal literally fueled the growth of our entire nation, but they didn't share in that prosperity. In fact, the old economy made this one of the poorest places in the United States even before the collapse in 2012. These communities sacrificed. They sacrificed lives, health, water, ecosystems, prosperity, and got little in return. They're owed a debt, and that's why we talk about justice in this economic transition. That debt can be repaid with the investments that are needed to build a new economy. We know the loss of coal jobs is a very real tragedy for the miners, for their families, for their communities. But it's a tragedy that sits on top of a disaster. And that disaster is the long-term systemic economic failure across this region, where the markets are broken, schools are underfunded, healthcare issues are off the charts, and we've lost so much of our workforce over the years as people left to find jobs somewhere else. In fact, many coal communities have lost more than half of their population since the 1940s. When we understand all of that, we can see that we need to do much more than just replace the jobs that were lost in the recent collapse of the coal industry. We need to help communities recreate themselves as places where people can live, places where people will choose to live. And it's not about bringing in one big industry to replace another. It's about creating local economies that work. We can do this. We can do it by focusing our efforts in key sectors like clean energy, local food, tourism, housing, healthcare, the creative economy, sustainable forestry, and using broadband to connect national and local and national markets and international markets to our local communities. These sectors can generate jobs and livelihoods for families, but they also improve the quality of life in our communities. The farmer's market, the bookstore, the coffee shop, the brew pub, the music venue, restaurants, health clinics, all of these are economic drivers that also contribute to quality of life. And that's what we need to rebuild our communities. So that the young person growing up in Appalachia can see that they have a future here, or those who went off to college or their first job will want to return. Those who left decades ago to find work and are now ready to retire will look and see that their old hometown now has the services and amenities they want and need. And the people who visit our communities will look around and say, hey, this place is beautiful. Maybe I can make a life here. And we can reimagine our communities to once again be thriving places with a wide range of opportunities for everyone. That's the future we're working for at the Mountain Association. As a community development financial institution, we provide startup capital and loans to help small businesses grow along with training and technical assistance to help them succeed. We invest strategically in sectors that can rebuild local economies. We've taken a particularly deep dive into clean energy for more than 10 years now, specifically energy efficiency and solar for small businesses and nonprofits. And that's a sector that has enormous potential for growth. Obviously the provisions currently included in the Build Back Better bill would advance that work tremendously. And we think a lot about the interaction between these sectors, how clean energy investments help stabilize costs for local food businesses, how local food can be a key element of growing tourism, and how tourism helps support and build the creative economy. And in all these sectors, focusing on local entrepreneurs and local ownership, so the return on investment stays in the community. And our economic development efforts are regenerative, not extractive. We think it's important to help people and communities connect, to share ideas, reimagine their own future. And we work with local leaders to help them build the future they want. And we're seeing examples all over the region of how the new economy can work. We do this with an extensive network of partners and allies across Appalachia because a heavy lift like this takes a lot of hands. Please feel free to reach out if you'd like to connect with this work. This is truly an historic time for this work as the president has pledged the full force of the federal government to support these efforts. Our job is to ensure that these new federal resources bring the maximum benefit to our communities and are invested in ways that will grow the good work that's already being done. That was Peter Hilly from the Mountain Association. 
The second day of the summit focused on lessons that local elected officials and community leaders could offer to maximize the positive impact of federal dollars on communities in the Ohio River Valley. Rosemary Ketchum, a city council member from Wheeling, West Virginia, talked about her approach as a former community organizer. Appalachia is broad and complex, and there are plenty of issues that we are facing. But in my eyes, it is an incredibly, um, uh, it is an unprecedented shift in power uh, to provide cities with American Rescue Plan funds, uh, because it's clear that cities are closest to the problems Um, and therefore, I think, closest to the solutions. I see the work that we're doing uh, in Wheeling and West Virginia more broadly uh, put into three different camps or strategies. Uh, First and foremost, I think the work we're doing is false flat if we're not engaging our communities and community organizing. Uh, Before I ran for office, I was a community organizer here in the state of West Virginia around issues like racial justice, healthcare, uh, energy efficiency. And I realized that folks in Appalachia are really tired of listening to the same old, same old um, speech and stump speech from politicians and even community organizers. Um, And I wondered why that was until I realized that it was a one-sided conversation, that we were gathering stories, but we weren't actually helping folks um, fix the problems um, that they had. Um, And in West Virginia, what I love so much about our state uh, is that we there are very few facades that we have here in the state. We're all experiencing uh, the same struggles. So, or at least most of us uh, anyway, but the folks closest to the problem are the most vulnerable communities that we have here in West Virginia. Uh, And and, um, uh, somebody mentioned uh, prior uh, flooding, Uh, West Virginia experiences an incredible amount of flooding uh, here in the state, not a state that you would imagine experiences uh, a lot of flooding. We're not on a coastline, um, but our most vulnerable communities are the ones that are impacted. So organizing, knocking doors, being face-to-face with our communities and really making relevant the impact of climate change is some of the most important work that we can do. Uh, The other really important strategy that I find that has uh, been successful here in West Virginia is engaging unlikely allies. Unfortunately, the conversation around climate change, environmental efficiency, Uh, has become a partisan conversation. I am a nonpartisan elected official, so I'm privileged um, to not have to defend a party position or platform, Uh, but it is concerning to me how partisan and politicized um, in climate change and environmental efficiency has become. But one of the most successful strategies that I've found um, uh, employing here in the city of Wheeling is engaging those unlikely allies working with our corporate and business and industry allies that I think now um, uniquely understand the need for transition uh, and efficiency in their business model. Uh, I believe they knew it prior to the pandemic, but it has only become more clear and more evident uh, in these past two years. Uh, We have um, done a lot of work engaging these partners uh, here in the city, and I believe across the state of West Virginia, uh, folks like Reimagine Appalachia are doing that work. Uh, I saw Robin Blakeman uh, in the audience today. Folks like Energy Efficient West Virginia are really working hard to change the narrative uh, and to remind folks that no matter your party, no matter your uh, location, you are impacted by this. Uh, But unfortunately, I think one of the uh, areas of impact um, that we see disparity is in class. Uh, Folks uh, who do not have a lot experience a lot. They're in the high impact zones. uh, And oftentimes folks uh, with a lot of resource, a lot of agency are the ones who who can afford and have the privilege to either ignore uh, or or, um, uh, not focus on the solution. So in West Virginia, we're working hard to bridge that gap. And lastly, empowering these folks. Uh, I think the reason why individuals, while I was community organizing and knocking doors and talking to folks, felt really frustrated is because they didn't feel like they were part of the solution. Uh, So it's incredibly important that we are giving folks uh, a roadmap to leadership 
here in Appalachia so that the folks who are, again, closest to the problem can be closest to the solution. And that looks like helping people run for office, letting folks know what positions on boards and committees are available in their city. Ultimately, we are the folks who decide how this money will be spent. And if we are not the folks who are experiencing the greatest impact, or at least are not as connected to our communities as we should be, I'm worried uh, that the funds will not be spent um, in a relevant nature. So working to ensure that those communities that are experiencing the greatest impact are in those positions of leadership will be very important, not just in the next year or the next couple years, but in the next decade uh, to ensure that we are uh, experiencing the greatest impact uh, and use of the American Rescue Plan. We have an enormous opportunity to build legacy here. And in the context of West Virginia, I really consider uh, the universal broadband expansion as one of the most critical components um, of the Build Back Better Plan, uh, of the American Rescue Plan Act. I find that uh, in vulnerable communities that do not have access to uh, good paying jobs, that do not have access to uh, clean water uh, or energy efficient um, resources, oftentimes what is closely associated with a lack of access is a lack of access to universal broadband. And if we, if we would like folks uh, to uh, engage in, in leadership and engage in their community and find significant ways uh, to um, build their own generational wealth. Uh, we cannot ask them to do that unless we are not giving them the tools of the 21st century. Uh, and that is universal broadband. Uh, here in West Virginia, there are plenty of stories of families, uh, particularly in the pandemic, who have to go to a local fast food restaurant uh, to receive adequate um, or even substandard internet connectivity. That is just disheartening uh, and embarrassing uh, for um, you know, a, a state here in the United States uh, to be dealing with, uh, but obviously as an indication of what we have valued and what we have prepared for, um, or you know, maybe even more specifically what we have not prepared for here in the 21st century. So in my eyes, I, I know a lot of folks um, are, are only now realizing that broadband is um, serious uh, industrial infrastructure in our communities, uh, but I think the impact of not having it is far greater um, than some of even the other things that we have spoken about. Um, so that for me is one of the most important parts um, when I think about what, what our legacy looks like here in Appalachia. That was Rosemary Ketchum. Rob Dorans is a labor lawyer and Columbus, Ohio city councilman. He spoke about the importance of using this new infusion of federal funding to make lasting changes for workers in the region. So my name is Rob Dorrance. I'm the chief legal counsel for an organization called ACT Ohio. We're a subsidiary of the state building trades here in Ohio. Uh, we represent over 130 local unions all across the state of Ohio in the building trades. Um, and we have about 95,000 rank and file members. Um, many of many of which are in the Appalachia region. Um, I'm also a city council member in, in Columbus, Ohio. So um, it depends on what day it is, what hat I'm wearing. But uh, today I'm wearing a little bit of both as we talk about uh, public policy and how, how it relates to the, the framework that we've all uh, come here to talk about. Um, so one thing that I, you know, I, I, my, my wife likes to accuse me from time to time of being too practical. And uh, I, I think that maybe is because uh, uh, the, the lawyer in me or the, um, the policymaker in me. But one of the things I wanted to bring to this conversation, I think everyone that has uh, spoke previous to me has done an excellent job of sort of setting the table of philosophically why we're here, right? And really philosophically about how we need to, I think, engage in sort of the discussions sort of overall, um, really bringing to the forefront of thinking about communities that have been lost, communities that have not been prioritized in the past, certainly by whether federal leaders or state leaders or, or even you know, generations of local leaders before that, um, you know, their, uh, their political base was not those who have been left behind. So I, yeah, I just want to take a couple moments to sort of focus a little bit on the, on the practical as we sort of approach these, uh, these ARC dollars. And one of the things that I, I would encourage 
local leaders. And as I look at the at the chat, I see folks that are involved in in advanced manufacturing and, and climate, and uh, just a, a excellent cross section of of different industries and different coalitions that are doing good work in these areas. Is really to think about workforce, right? So if we think about how do we uh, lift people out of um, places that they have not had the resources for their families and their children before. It's how are we going to direct a massive public investment in these places in which is going to touch as many of these people's lives as possible. And ultimately, part of that is touching them in their paycheck, right? So when we think about, um, you know, one of the things that the, these ARP dollars specifically have targeted in them is the creation of good union jobs. And the reason we, we all uh, you know, nod our heads and acknowledge the thing about good union jobs is that um, we have the ability, those jobs come with health care, come with retirement benefits, come with all the things that are sustaining for families, generationally sustaining for families. Um, and when we talk about a one-time infusion of dollars, that is something that oftentimes policymakers look at. Here's our sort of opportunity uh, to do some big things in our communities. Well, those dollars are going to be spent. The things we're going to do with them are going to happen. And ultimately, um, there's going to be a legacy, good, bad, and different, of how those dollars you know, are spent, right? So I think one of the things from, from my vantage point, as both someone that works in the, with the trades and certainly as a policymaker, is how do we make those investments in a way in which we're encouraging these good union jobs? And I think one of the things is that historically, we have seen the, the lack of participation in some of these jobs of, of groups that, whether they're, uh, you know, black, brown, uh, native, that have not had access to these types of training programs before. That's also something that's specifically called out in these ARP dollars, is saying, we want to encourage training. We want to encourage to make sure to use these types of investments as training grounds so that folks can gain skills that move beyond just the spending of these ARP dollars. So, you know, very, very quickly, I'll just mention a couple of examples of this is, you know, lead replacement pipes, right? There are training, pro there are millions of lead, lead pipes, both on the public side and private side in many of our communities that have to be replaced. And that is one, one aspect of the infrastructure bill that has significant dollars attached to them. This is an excellent place for when local officials are looking at doing large contracts in order to have these replacements happen in their community to engage businesses that are union businesses that also are placing an emphasis on training apprentices, and not just apprentices, but doing diverse outreach to communities to bring people into these apprenticeship programs that did not have access to them before. Every hour on those projects is an hour that is being created by that, that ARP dollar. Why, why shouldn't we maximize the usage of that dollar, not only to replace that deadly lead line, but also to use that dollar to train someone who's going to have a lifelong skill to continue to use that skill to provide for their family in the future. And oh, by the way, to work with folks at the local level to make sure the person that's being trained is actually someone who will benefit from it, who has not benefited from those training, those types of those training dollars before. That is one of a thousand different ways in which we can leverage these dollars, not only to do good for our community today, but to have a significant impact from a workforce standpoint for families to have sustaining wages, sustaining healthcare, sustaining retirement benefits. So that is, you know, as I started off with my, my wife likes to, again, make fun of me from time to time for being too practical. But what I would encourage folks to do is to think through these, these investments are so, so large. Don't lose focus on the practical of how do we amplify those dollars as they're being spent to address everything that every speaker has just mentioned here today. And there's a thousand different examples of this. And as you know, somebody who spends their time in it with the building trades, I know that there's 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 other there's other groups are outside of the trades that are involved in issues that are not you know hard infrastructure kinds of things. And hopefully, we'll see more of that coming in the future. But if, if you're an elected official, if you're a community group, you're an organizer and you're gonna be in these spaces, I highly encourage you to bring some of that organizing um, to places in which we can see some practical outcomes to make sure this investment is amplified in our community. You know, to uh, dovetail off my prior comments, I think when you look at um, currently the, the most of the building trades membership um, 
we have about uh, a fourth of our members that are likely to retire in the next 10 years. So when we talk about the skills gap that exists in our country as a whole, but that skills gap exists in every single community that's going to be uh, impacted by these dollars that are, that are going to be spent. So one of the things when you talk about the legacy of this is actually spending those dollars in a way in which we're encouraging those training opportunities to occur, but also to take the next step, right? One of the things that um, is not a positive legacy is that unfortunately there has been instances in which uh, folks getting into you know, building trades, apprenticeship, union uh, training programs have not been diverse. You know, there has not been that significant outreach to communities uh, because it's been so family lineage. You know, uh, I'm a third generation union member myself. My dad was in the IBW. My grandfather was in the plumbers and pipe fitters. It's a family lineage, right? And that exists for many, many families. But what if a family doesn't have that lineage? How do they get access to it, especially if they're from a group that is marginalized, right? So it's not only just the legacy from the training aspect, but the intentionality about how to bring folks into that pipeline. And that's something that can policymakers can mandate, right? That's something as they spend these dollars, they can put requirements on these to make that happen in which that legacy far outlives just the spending of these dollars in our community. The session ended with comments from Bishop Marsha Dinkins, a representative of the Black Appalachian Coalition and executive director of Ohio Interfaith Power and Light. Um, so again, I have to agree and echo with what has already been said. Um, wanting to build upon something Rob mentioned or that he was driving home. This is an opportunity, in my opinion, um, is that we get to, again, break the, the social constructs around race. And we get to create opportunities that capitalism has um, pretty much pushed down. And so in my opinion, we get to demonstrate not only access um, and accessibility, but we get to shift and create economic opportunities, which then begins to dismantle the arm that's connected to race. Because at the end of the day, we're really not fighting a, a thing around racism as much as we are capitalism um, or economics. And so we also to, uh, have an opportunity to create not only economic mobility, uh, sustainability and stability, but we also get to create pathways where people are lifted up out of poverty. So this is also an opportunity, again, where we have to look at the human infrastructure that's connected to the social safety net, that's connected to food, that's connected to health, that's connected to education, that's connected to testing, that's connected to the well-being of who we are as humans. And so we get an opportunity right now to not only you know, um, depoliticize this to where we can humanize it, you know, but we also get an opportunity to build out a plan that continues to dismantle those things that have been connected to the U.S. slave trade that has not created or proffered opportunities for generational wealth. And so that also means we need to think about how do we re-educate and how do we educate to create opportunities? And lastly, to connect to other things inside of our government that will also be levers that we can use to bring about the viability of our communities. One being, and I've had a prior conversation, I don't mean to put Mayor Brown on the spot, but a year or so ago around the Credit Reinvestment Act. What are those other levers that we get to extract and pull out? Because if we are going to have a clean anything, and what I hear is that we want a clean life, we want a clean quality of life, and we want a clean well-being, then we need to pull all of those levers that our city council members, our mayors, our government officials, colleges, and, and whomever else has the power and the voice and the visibility to bring things into the community. And once they're brought into the community, bring the community into the conversation so that we can rebuild, regenerate and replenish our community so that we can revitalize not only our life, but have a, a life that our children can live from generation to generation. You've been listening to Reimagine Appalachia's 2022 Strategy Summit. Reimagine Appalachia is a diverse coalition of organizations and individuals working together to build a 21st century economy that's good for workers, communities, and the environment in the Ohio River Valley. Thank you for listening to Making Connections News. 
All of our stories about opportunities and challenges for diversifying Appalachia's economy and renewing our communities are available on our website, makingconnectionsnews.org, or wherever you find your podcasts. Please check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter as well. I'm your host, Mimi Pickering, and in full transparency, I am on the board of Appalachian Citizens Law Center, featured in our show today. Thank you for listening. From WMMT, this is Mountain Community Radio.